We have that note of glory ringing in our ears. We turn to Matthew chapter 15. As we continue our study of Matthew's gospel, we find ourselves this morning in the first 20 verses of chapter 15. As you turn there, I want to just remind you of the message of Matthew's gospel. It's always helpful to remind ourselves of this so that we place everything in the right context. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the King who reigns over the kingdom of heaven with all authority, which consists of disciples from all nations who obey all that He has commanded. Every element of that sentence is important. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the King. What does He rule over? He rules over the kingdom of heaven. He was a part of that kingdom. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. People from all nations who obey all that He has commanded. After all, it doesn't do you any good to have a king if you don't submit to Him. That's the purpose of a king and uh, the relationship with His servants or those in His kingdom. And as we turn to Matthew 15, we find ourselves in the middle of this great portrait of our king. We're coming right on the heels of these wonderful miracles that Jesus has performed that proclaim without any uncertainty that He is God. In fact, Jesus Himself claims in the words, I am to be God. And yet, here we find the response to Jesus sort of different than we might expect. Beginning in verse 1, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he, he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the tremendous privilege it is that we 
might open our Bibles and hear from You, the living God. Lord, we don't take that lightly, that You have spoken, that You have spoken clearly, that You have spoken authoritatively, and that You have spoken savingly in the person of Your Son. Lord, we desire this morning to be those people described by Isaiah, those to whom You will look, those who are humble and contrite and who tremble at Your Word. Father, we pray that You would deliver us from that age-old pitfall of honoring You with our lips while our hearts are far from You, worshiping You in vain as we make void Your Word. Lord, help us to exalt above all things Your name and Your Word, even as You have and have said to us in the Psalms. Lord, point us to Jesus. Make us like Your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. feels like we're making up the rules as we go. I wonder if you've ever had an opportunity to say that to someone in some sort of competitive context. It seems like we're making up the rules as we go. For me, it was growing up uh, playing a lot of backyard baseball, as I did growing up in the 80s and 90s. It's part of the Sandlot generation, so it was natural for us to spend quite a bit of time outside playing baseball together. And I lived in a big enough neighborhood that there were multiple friend groups that we played with. Each had their own set of rules, sort of home field advantage for whichever kid's house we were playing at. But it it seemed like almost every time we played, the rules would change to benefit whoever was supposed to win. Suddenly the foul lines were difficult to differentiate. Ghost men could score the winning run. And rules just kind of were made up as you went along. And it was exasperating. You say to your friends, it feels like we're making the rules up as we go. I wonder if you've ever thought that about this thing that we call Christianity. It feels like we're making the rules up as we go. And of course, the reason that you might say that is, very often we are. What's at stake in the passage in front of us this morning is just that. Will you and I be those who make the rules up as we go, Or will we be people who hear God's diagnosis of our real condition and then accept His solution to our heart problem in the person of His Son? You find here in the text a question of tradition as it relates to the Word of God, of adding rules and regulations to the Scriptures, and Jesus' penetrating diagnosis of our hearts and thereby giving us the solution in Himself. Will we make up the rules as we go? Or will we hear the Word of God in power this morning? I want to give you the sort of big idea of the text before we even dive in. And I want to give it to you in multiple sentences because it's so important that I want to make sure that each and every one of us grasps what Jesus is telling us this morning. Very simply, what Jesus is saying in Matthew 15, 1-20 is that sin operates not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Or, sin is not a problem that exists somewhere out there. It is a problem that exists in here. Or, sin is not a disease that you might catch. It's an affliction that you already have. Or, as someone has said, the heart of the human problem 
is the human heart. If you'd prefer to use the language of our text, which I certainly would, our problem isn't dirty hands. Our problem is defiled hearts. Our problem is not dirty hands. Our problem is defiled hearts. What Jesus wants us to see is that no amount of law-keeping will ever make you pure and acceptable to the Lord. Because by nature, by our very nature, we are impure and unacceptable to the Lord. Now, there's a clear structure here in the passage. If you just look down and follow with me, there are three people groups to whom Jesus speaks. In verse 1, then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Then in verse 10, he called the people to him and said to them, and then in verse 12, then the disciples came to him and said to him, do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? So Jesus in this text has a word for the Pharisees and the scribes, he has a word for the people at large, and he has a word for the disciples. And the sort of kernel of everything that Jesus says here in this passage comes in his word to the people. Look again at verses 10 and 11. Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. That's sort of the doctrine that Jesus is teaching. And everything that happens before it in verses 1 to 9 sort of set up the context for that saying. And everything that flows from that in 12 to 20 is a fleshing out or outworking application, explanation of that saying. What Jesus is talking to us about is dirty hands and defiled hearts. That's going to be our outline this morning as we make our way through the text. Dirty hands and defiled hearts. So the first thing that I want us to see in verses 1 to 9 is this uh, at least apparent issue of dirty hands. Dirty hands. Now, I want us to understand, first and foremost, why dirty hands would even be an issue. If you read verse 1, then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. That then sets in the motion, Jesus really going in on the Pharisees and the scribes. And we ask the question, why? Why would that be such a big deal? I mean, certainly we would all agree that it's at least hygienic to wash your hands before you eat, maybe even after you eat. If Jesus would have grown up in my house... I don't think he would have corrected my mother for telling me to get into the kitchen and wash up before dinner. So what's really at stake here? Again, as the question is posed, the Pharisees and scribes say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? So here we go. Now we're beginning to get to the kernel, the core, of why this is even an issue in the first place. There is a tradition, an oral tradition of the elders of Israel that says Men must wash their hands before they eat. Must. It carries the force of a moral ought. In fact, when Mark describes this account in his gospel, in chapter 7 of, of the gospel that bears his name, in verses 3 and 4, this is Mark's explanation. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Not even just wash their hands. Wash their hands properly holding to the tradition of the elders, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. This is all tradition. 
The problem with this is that nowhere in the Old Testament will you find commands that require everyone to wash their hands before they eat. The children in the congregation to breathe a huge sigh of relief. There's no command, there's no moral oughtness to washing your hands before you eat. The most you'll find is in Exodus chapter 30 and Leviticus 22, where Aaron and his sons, the priests of Israel, the Levitical priests, were to make themselves clean for temple service. That's the moral requirement. The scribes and Pharisees, maybe with the best of intentions, thought to themselves, well, you know, the only way to keep a son of Aaron clean in temple service is to make sure that every Peter, James, and John washes his hands before he eats. Their tradition now carries the moral force and authority of a thus says the Lord. Why, they ask, do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. This is an accusation. This is a challenge. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus will not tolerate this kind of thinking even for a second. His argument, if you just want to summarize it in an overview, is you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. That's number one. Number two, I could show you that you do that by way of your abolition of the fifth commandment. Number three, because you do these things, you nullify the word of God and your worship is a charade. You see what's at stake here? The very moment that we add something to God's Word, our worship is a joke. It's a charade. It's a sham. This is the words of Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 3. He answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now, if you are the kind of person who underlines or makes notes in your Bible, let me encourage you to underline the following phrases. Verse 4, For God commanded, underline, For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, underline, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. God commanded, but you say. We've got a clear and authoritative word from the Lord, and we've got the teaching of mere men set in contrast with one another, As reasonable people, we should be able to figure out who we're supposed to listen to. God commanded, but you say. And what had God commanded? God commanded, honor your father and your mother. This is the fifth commandment. You'll find it in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12 to be specific. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Exodus 20, verse 12. We have a clear, main and plain, impossible, not to understand, Clear commandment from the living God. Honor your father and your mother. Then Exodus chapter 21, verse 17, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. We have a positive statement of command and a negative statement of punishment that is required for the one who breaks that command. God has said this. But you say. Now, the way that these scribes and Pharisees sort of fiddle with the clear teaching of Scripture is by way of what is called a Corbin law. And the way the Corbin law works is that a man or a woman who was going to leave an inheritance to their parents might declare it Corbin or a gift to God 
so that then on, upon their death, the money would all be given to the, the temple service. And it sounds really godly. It's just an ancient form of the Jesus juke. It's wiggling my way out of the clear teaching of Scripture by means of this convoluted additional religious requirement that in actual fact makes God's Word void. Jesus says you fiddle with this thing simply so that you can spend your money any way you want while you're living and then not have to give it to your parents when you've died. What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his Father. So what's the conclusion? So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the Word of God. This is so profound when you get hold of it. The scribes and Pharisees have added. They've added rules and regulations. They're making the rules up as they go. They've added rules and regulations to the Scriptures. But Jesus, in his diagnosis of what's actually happening says, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the Word of God. You've taken away from God's Word simply by adding to it. I was thinking a lot this week about writing checks. I don't think many of us write checks anymore. I certainly don't. But do you remember what you would do if you wrote a check, perhaps an error, or you had to give a check, a blank check, to an employer for direct deposit, and they'd have the routing number? You would write in all capital letters, unmistakable, void across the entire thing. And what were you doing when you wrote void across the top of your check? You were proclaiming to the world around you, do not try and cash this check, do not try to write on this check. This check is what? Absolutely worthless. It's useless. Now think about what Jesus is saying to these men who've added, even with the best of intentions, to the the Word of God. If we assume the best of them, What does Jesus say to these men? He says, I don't know. You've just written void across the Ten Commandments. You've turned in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20, and you have written in all capital letters with a permanent marker, void, worthless, useless. You hypocrites. It's the very moment that tradition is exalted above the position of the authority of God's Word, Jesus says, your religion is so much like a million different renditions of the Nutcracker by children that will happen all over the country this Advent season. You're acting. That's what hypocrite means. You're an actor. You're pretending. Your worship is a sham very serious words. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you. I remember my friend Dan Larison preaching on this passage, and he said what Jesus is getting at here is he he looks at these men and he says, that Old Testament word in Isaiah fits you like a well-tailored suit. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips. Their heart is far from me. Again, the issue is the heart. In vain do they worship me. Teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. It's brilliant. As Matthew interprets this whole situation, he says, Jesus told these men that they were making God's word effectively worthless, which in turn made their worship effectively worthless. It's a very serious problem. 
I can remember when Alistair first found out that I was a, a closet Baptist before I made it public. He was uh, sharing with me on one occasion, he was in a Baptist church. The preacher got up, opened up 1 Timothy chapter 3, and said, I want you to notice here in this passage that what Paul does here is he outlines the qualifications for elders and deacons. In the first 12 verses, you have the qualifications for elders, but we're Baptists, so we're going to just skip to verse 13. Are you kidding? Somehow Baptists are immune from submitting to the clear and plain teaching of Scripture on elders? For the sake of your tradition, you break the Word of God. When we've done that, Jesus says, our worship is a charade. Because the problem, the problem is not dirty hands. The problem is so much deeper. It's radical, really. And only the Bible will tell you the truth about what's really wrong with you. In verse 10, we have this pivot from the perceived problem of dirty hands to the real problem of defiled hearts. He called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. Now, all throughout this portion of the passage, Matthew is pulling us back towards chapter 13, that great parable tradition. Peter himself refers to what Jesus says as a parable. And we have echoes of all of those parabolic instructions here where Jesus says, hear and understand. As, as he says to the people in chapter 13, he who has eyes to see, let him see. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As he pulls the disciples away and says, are you also still without understanding? Gentle rebuke. Have you not gotten it yet? Who I am and what I've come to do. The real danger that you're in apart from me. Hear and understand, verse 10. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Our problem, again, is not dirty hands, it's defiled hearts. Our problem isn't that we might go out into the world and come down with sin, like you might catch a common cold. The problem is, we're all infected from the get-go. It's not what goes into the mouth, but what comes out of the mouth. Now, the disciples need clarification on this on two fronts. Number one, they need clarification as it relates to the Pharisees. Now, understand, this is vital for you and for me. There is a command here from Jesus along these lines of what defiles and what does not that we dare not ignore. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard the saying? Literally scandalized. It's an encouragement to me that outrage culture didn't begin in the 21st century. Religious people have been offended and scandalized. They, make, they might as well get PhDs in offense to religious people. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? What was Jesus, Lord of the universe, King over the kingdom of heaven say? Oh my goodness, that's going to really hurt my PR campaign. Can't have those guys upset. They're really powerful. 
He says, get on with them then. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? What does Jesus say? He takes us right back into the parables. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Do you remember the parable of the weeds? Where Jesus tells the story of a man goes out into his field and he plants good seed. And at night while he's sleeping, an enemy comes in and plants weeds. And the next day, his servants come to him and say, didn't you plant good seed? Why then are there weeds? Who are the weeds? Jesus says the the religious elite in Israel are the weeds. The moral police are the weeds. Those who view the issue of sin as being solved by washing your hands are the weeds. Those who would add to the Word of God are the weeds. Let them alone. Literally ignore them. Pay them no mind. That's a command. Let them alone. Why? They are blind guides. See, there's a real danger here. There's a danger in you and I being allured by the kind of teaching that simply heaps up moral oughts but doesn't ever point us to Jesus. There's an allure to just tell me what to do. Is send me out of here this morning with something to do. We're addicted to having something to do. The more creative you can say it, the better. Just give me something. Jesus said, leave those people alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. There's a real fall awaiting the person whose Christianity is built on nothing but do's and don'ts. Well, that's the case, and we're going to need some real understanding of what Jesus is trying to say. So in verse 15, Peter says to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still also without understanding? Have you not gotten it? Do you not see what I mean here? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? I don't think that needs any explanation. You you get that. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. It's not out there. It's in here. If you want to discover what's wrong with the world today, I say this with the greatest respect as a fellow sinner. All you have to do is follow your heart. You understand? You and I have been told ever since we were children, just follow your heart, follow your heart. Where does your your heart lead? What does Jesus say? Where does your heart lead? What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. What does the prophet Jeremiah say? Our hearts are wicked and deceptive who can even figure them out jesus says follow your heart and you will see exactly what defiles a person loved ones it is so much easier it is so much easier to operate on the level of religious tradition and do's and don'ts in order to try and make myself or keep myself acceptable to god that is manageable but it is worthless 
Just tell me to wash my hands before I eat. I can check that box every day until glory. What's a lot more difficult is peering into the wickedness that's in my own heart and understanding that I need radical means to be healed. There was this man um, back, back home that I, I had the privilege of meeting. He's just a, a sweet, sweet older man in his uh, late 60s, 70s. Sorry if you don't feel like that's old. Um, but <laughs> I caught myself as I was saying that. I'm very sorry if you were offended by that. <laughs> but this man was, was sharing his testimony with me. I was interviewing him for membership at, at, the, at the church. And he had been in the military, and he was telling me the story about when he, when he first felt the weight of his sin, when he first felt convicted of his sin. And he said, you know, I was, I was in, in the military, and I started thinking about the way I, I spoke to women, I started thinking about the way I treated women, I started thinking about the way I treated other people, and, and I just was so overwhelmed. He said, I went that night into the, the shower, I turned the water on, I turned it on as hot as I could get it, as hot as I could stand it. He said, I completely lost track of time, and then I realized I'd been in there for like an hour and a half. And he said, the reason I was in there for so long is because I was dirty and I was trying to get clean. I was trying to wash away the sense of shame and guilt. He said, I felt like Lady Macbeth. If you've never read Macbeth, there's this brilliant scene where Lady Macbeth wakes up, she's sleepwalking. And in, in a vision, she, she sees blood on her hand. And it's, it's figurative of, of all the bloodshed, all the, the blood that was on her hands because of the way that she and her husband had ruled. And she tries to wash it off. Isn't that brilliant? She's trying to wash her hands clean. And she washes and she washes. And in her frustration, she proclaims, out out damned spot but the guilt never alleviates because her issue isn't her hands her issue was her heart and it was ultimately that feeling of of not being able to wash himself clean that led my brother to faith in christ because he realized where the problem actually existed as you I'm convinced that the clearest apologetic for the gospel, the clearest testimony of the gospel is your own heart. If you want to know what's wrong with the world, just look at the way that you speak. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever goes into the mouth, passes into the stomach, is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Just think about the way that we give voice to our evil thoughts. The way that we spew hatred and ridicule and criticism, the seed Jesus teaches of murder. You don't have to be a construction worker catcalling a woman to know what it is to voice lustful, sexually immoral thoughts, to bear false witness and to slander. Jesus uses the fifth commandment as exhibit A for the problem of the Pharisees. And then he walks us right through 6 through 10 to show us our hearts are desperately wicked. Jesus, you don't have to worry about eating dirty food and becoming unacceptable to God by way of that. You're already, you're already there. 
The God who made you and can see into your heart sees this darkness every time He looks. There's no amount of soap and water that will wash that away. And some of us have been playing this little religious game in an effort to wash it away. But you know, in the quietness of your own heart, when you lie on your bed at night alone with your own heart, that it hasn't made a lick of difference. Because you still feel the pinch. There's something wrong with me. You never voice it. It's not part of polite conversation. But you know it to be true. And if the problem exists in your heart, you don't just need a hand washing, you need surgery. You need your heart opened up and surgically cared for. Matthew, at the beginning of this gospel, he presents Jesus as the long-awaited son of Abraham and son of David, but also as the one who brings us back from exile, as our separation from the Lord. And in the context of Israel's exile, there's this brilliant prophecy by the prophet Jeremiah who says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Why'd they break it? Their hearts were wicked. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Here's the kicker. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So here we have a covenant that's coming, Jeremiah says, that's going to change your heart. No longer will your heart be a bastion of hypocrisy and wickedness, but within your very own heart will reside the law of God so that you obey joyfully. But it comes only when the Lord forgives our iniquity and remembers our sins no more. As we fast forward in Matthew's Gospel, to that great Passover meal with Jesus and His disciples, as He sits with them and He shares a meal with them, He says to them, this is the blood of the covenant. Which covenant? That law on your heart, forgiveness of sin covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus died for sin so that this new covenant promise might be yours. Not only, not only of the forgiveness of sins, but of the law of God written on your heart. So that now it's a delight to walk in the ways of the Lord. It's a delight to obey His commands. For they're not burdensome, 1 John 
Those are the blessings of the new covenant which come to us in the person of our great king, this great son of David, Jesus the Messiah. What will you do with your sinful, darkened heart? The only solution, the only solution is to look in faith to Jesus as the one who paid the penalty for your sin. The one who, in the words of, for my money, one of the greatest living preachers right now, Terry McCutcheon, in order for something to get clean, something else has to get dirty. And isn't it the gospel that Jesus came and got dirty so that our dirty hearts might be made clean? That's what we proclaim. And he rose again victorious over sin and death, ushering in this great new covenant, dealing with our defiled hearts with something a lot more extreme and effective than hand-washing. Loved ones, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you've never trusted in Jesus, let me tell you, There is nothing that you will ever be able to do to satisfy God the Father. You will always have a sense of your own guilt, your own unworthiness. It's the way it's meant to be. You are guilty. Flee to Jesus. And those of us who have followed Jesus for some time understand that you and I are always in danger of mere formal religion of adding to the Word of God so that we might feel better about ourselves and our religiosity. Paul has to say to the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 20 of Colossians, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, don't go there, don't see that, don't go there. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to what? Human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You can heap up rules and regulations for yourself until the cows come home. Paul says it is of no value and actually curbing sin. Because sin, again, is within. And so the only one who can change us is the one who can change our hearts. That is Jesus. May it never be said of us at First Baptist, you know, they got a lot of self-made religion going on there. As I've seen how they live, it's of no value may be said of us that those people are madly infatuated with Jesus. That they can't get enough of this gospel. And you know what's so crazy is I've never met a godlier person in my life. Exactly. Will we make the rules up as we go? Or will we come face to face with what God diagnoses problem to be. The depth of wickedness within our hearts. And look to Jesus as the only solution. I pray you'll 
look to Jesus this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Lord, we confess with Luther that religion is the default mode of our hearts. We love, we love to add to your word. We love to just get the shot of telling me what to do. Lord, that's easy and short work for us. But to look inside and to see the truth of what you say about us, our hearts are dark, defiled, wicked. Lord, that's painful. And yet it's that painful road that leads us to the saving grace of God in the person of your Son. The one who comes to write his law upon our hearts as he forgives us of our sin. Lord, as we look to Jesus, we pray for each one here who's never trusted in you. Lord, would you draw every person in this room to a saving knowledge of Christ. For those of us who know you, Lord, we pray that you would make us more like yourself as you remind us of the freeness of your grace. Lord, we love you. We need you. We thank you that all that we have is Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.